Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Now I've got a question for you. What's the connection between Elizabeth Bennet, Frodo Baggins and Christian Grey? You're a well-read lot, so you'll know that before they graced cinemas and televisions around the world, all of these characters began their lives in books. Vast squadrons of our best-loved characters and stories have made the sometimes perilous journey from page to screen. But how exactly does a book become a film? And what does it feel like to have your literary creations materialise in front of you? What's lost, if anything, during the process? And can the film ever make the book even better? This month we've got stars in our eyes as we turn our gaze towards the silver screen, talking to authors Deborah Mogok and Sadie Jones about their experiences of adapting their books for film and TV, and hearing about a pioneering digital project between a book publisher and film production company that's bringing a classic into the 21st century. My first guest is Deborah Mogok, author of 18 novels including The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which came out as a film starring Judi Dench, Maggie Smith and Bill Nighy. 2011. She's also a screenwriter, having written the BAFTA-nominated screenplay for Pride and Prejudice and adapted Nancy Mitford's Love in a Cold Climate. Later this year, her novel Tulip Fever, starring Judi Dench, Christoph Waltz and Cara Delevingne, will hit the screens. And if that wasn't enough, a new ITV drama has been commissioned of her 2013 novel, Heartbreak Hotel. Now, her new novel, Something to Hide, is about the unexpected twists of later life, including, but not limited to, betraying a friend, infidelity, love in your 60s, surrogacy and poaching in Africa. It's published on the 2nd of July, and as far as I know, there are no plans yet for a TV or film version, although based on your previous form, Deborah, surely it's just a matter of time. I think it might be. But the thing is that books are optioned all the time, so I've now stopped bragging that my books are optioned because, you know, half of them don't don't get done. But put like that, as you've just said, it sounds as if absolutely everything I've done is blazing off the screen. Well, of course, I suppose the most obvious thing to say is time. I mean, when did you write Tulip Fever? It's, it's many years ago now, isn't it? Tulip Fever's been a very slow burner, <laughs> we could safely say. I mean, I wrote it nearly 20 years ago. It was optioned then by... Steven Spielberg, and in fact almost made into a film just about to be shot with all the costumes and canals sunk to make, you know, Amsterdam. And at the very, very last minute, Gordon Brown, who was then uh, Chancellor, closed a tax loophole and the entire film was destroyed overnight and a squillion tulips were flung on the That's right, you actually had all the tulips, didn't you? There were 12,000 tulips for the film, each in a little pot in a nursery in Thames Ditton, and the nursery phoned up the next morning saying, what are you going to do with these tulips as your film is destroyed? And I said, well, bring 500 round to my front garden, leave them in the front garden, and the neighbours could take them. And so my little film cropped up every spring in people's gardens in the guise of tulips. Well, you see, it, 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 everything gets its, its use, doesn't it? Everything has its day. If one's it's... going to be Panglossian, yes. <laughs> and, of course, all this time, the book, as a book, was doing brilliantly well. I mean, it wasn't a slow burn in that sense. It was a huge bestseller. Yeah. So, you know, you, had a, you were having a very happy experience. It, it's as it it's was. been thrilling. The book has been a very thrilling experience. And when the film comes out at the end of the year... Um, it, it'll have another lease of life, and it, it, you know, and we'll have all these wonderful actors being my characters. 
How much have you been involved with the process of, of the filming, of casting, of all that sort of thing? Were you involved in any of the discussions? What was it like? Well, um, I wrote a draft of the script. That was in the Spielberg era. It's now in the Harvey Weinstein era because he took it on. And there have been, I think, about eight screenwriters on it, which is the way of the movies. It's sort of insane because the book is a film. It's a very, very filmic book. I wrote it like a film, but it's just had all these different incarnations. Um, and Stoppard's, you know, done a script and lots of people. And it's now, it's sort of now sort of back to the book. It veered right off the book. And then, as so often happens in Hollywood, it came it came cantering back to where it started, which is the story, which is what they bought at the beginning. Now, I have to ask you about this funny little story that I think comes up in this whole process. And it's to do with your milkman. My milkman at the time, remember we're now spanning a long time. He um, When people had their milk delivered. When they, people had their milk delivered, exactly. He's a great film buff, or was a great film buff. And so we used to talk about movies. And when I was going off to for this meeting with Spielberg in Hollywood, this thrilling moment, I was running down the garden path with my suitcase to get into the cab to go and fly off. And Ron, my milkman, was coming up the pass with his clanking bottles. And he said, where are you off to, Deb? And I said, well, funny you should ask, Ron. I'm actually going to, to L.A. to speak to Steven Spielberg, since you asked. <laughs> and this film's going to happen, and you and I can be extras, because I'm always extras in my films. And we could be, maybe we could be market traders in Amsterdam in 1636. Got on the plane, didn't think anything of it. On the plane, I bumped into Barry Norman, who was going to the Oscars, and he said, where are you off to, Deb? And I said, well, funnily enough, Barry, to meet Steven Spielberg, I've just written this book, Tulip Eve, and I gave him a, the only copy I had of the book, which I was going to give to Spielberg to suck up to him. Barry Norman read it on the flight, and as we got off, he whispered, I've, put on, I've written on one of the pages, Steven Spielberg is a wanker. So I thought, great. <laughs> so I got terrible giggles, had the meeting with Spielberg, came back to find, emblazoned on our local newspaper, a photograph of my milkman with his milk float saying... Milkman to star in Spielberg movie. And I thought, well, that's a bit funny because it's not even a film yet. And the Daily Express phoned up and said, you know, um, we, we, we've just been speaking to your milkman about his starring role in the Spielberg movie <laughs> of Tulip Fever. Um, would you like to add anything? He suggested we spoke to you as well. So um, the film didn't happen and 15 years passed and it's just been reassembled again with this crack cast. Amazing Really director. amazing cast. Amazing cast. Amazing director, Justin Chadwick, who did Bleak House and the Nelson Mandela film. And it's, it's really completely wonderful. Were you on set at any point? I was, because I'm in it. I'm in two scenes. I'm, my favourite role, which is woman sitting with a glass of beer and a clay pipe puffing away, um, playing cards. And then I'm woman looking at a painting um, and nodding my head. I try to dominate the scene, but I think they've cut most of it out. But it was, um, it was lovely, because... It was a lot of it was in Pinewood Studios, and they built this set that was exactly like walking into a Dutch painting. Very dark, atmospheric, beautiful old paintings on the wall. A real parrot on a stand, and whenever they went for a take, the parrot wrangler would put a peanut into its mouth to stop it, call, you know, making parrot noises. Um, and I was in the middle of my own film with these lovely actors around me in the room that I'd envisaged when I was writing the book straight out of Vermeer's paintings. 
And at no point in this whole process did you feel that you wanted to turn around and say, no, 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 this is not how I wanted this scene to be. This is not what so-and-so looks like. That is the wrong wall hanging or something like that. Well, nobody will look like what you have in your head. And every reader has their own, their own intimate relationship with the characters in a book. And whether an actor's good or bad is immaterial, they won't be that person. And that's the weird thing about turning books into films. If it's something like Pride and Prejudice, there's so many Elizabeth Bennets because there have been so many versions that in a way she dissolves away and the Elizabeth Bennet that you knew in the book returns to you. But if it's just one film, the actress who plays the heroine in this, you know, will be, become the heroine of the book if you read the book afterwards. And there were moments in the past when I thought, oh, God, that's not quite right. But as I said, it's gone back to the book. And, you know, not surprisingly, I believe in the book rather than various people's versions of it. And did you feel the same with Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? Because that has been a rip-roaring success. One of the ways that we know that is there is no plane journey I ever go on where it's not one of the films. It's extraordinary. Well, I think the film was such a success, partly because of its amazing cast again. I mean, what thesps, the thoroughbred thesps of all time. Um, Maggie Smith and all that lot, as, as you said. But partly because I think... It's a very cheerful, life-affirming film about the fact that you may be in your 70s or even your 80s and you, it's possible to have another whole episode of, of life if you're up for it. And also, the film isn't entirely thinking of old age in terms of incipient dementia and strokes and heart attack and death. You know, they, 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 they lurk within the film and certainly within the book, but... It's really saying we're just the same people we always were. We make mistakes, we fall in love, we are jealous, we're joyful, we're all the things we ever were, we're just more wrinkly with it. Which very much is the theme continuing in Heartbreak Hotel, isn't it? In a, in a rather different setting, rather less exotic setting. Um, but nonetheless, it's that, it's that theme of you can begin over and do anything else with your life whenever you want to. Absolutely. And Heartbreak Hotel, as you say, it's, it's, it's set on the Welsh borders, so it's, you know, best exotic with a lot of rain and freezing cold. Um, but it's, it's, it, it's, again, a lot of the characters are, you know, what I call very grown up indeed. I don't like calling them old. And in fact, very grown up indeed is, is the worst description because they're not very grown up. They behave like teenagers, a lot of them. Well, I suppose who springs to mind, you know, is, is the sort of presiding spirit of it, Buffy. Um, and I, it's interesting to think of how he would be cast, this rather extraordinary, fading actor. Exactly. I mean, Buffy in the book is sort of a, a big bloke, bearded, uh, rather boozy, very jolly and twinkly. Um, so you can go that way and go the sort of fleshy but still attractive route, because I love chatty fleshy men myself. I'm thinking um, of Brian Blessed, you see. Well, Brian Blessed would, would be good. He's Big. <laughs> you've got to. You've got. To, I don't like to. Anyway, this is shape. But you've. You've. He's still got to be attractive. I would say Roger Allen would be very good. Yes, because he's jolly attractive still. See, um, this is such fun. I'm immediately thinking of a slightly aged up Simon Russell Beale. Simon Russell Beale would be wonderful. Or you go the skinny route, and we're back to Bill Nye. His lovely name, like wind through corn, Bill Nye. 
um, you go the thin chic route, and he's catnipped women. I mean, you say his lovely name, which is like Winsor Cornwall, or women sighing all over the world. Bill Nye. Just before we let you go, tell us about your new book, which will be out in a few weeks' time, and I'm sure will at some point be on the screen. Well, that too tackles the mistakes we make in love, even at an advanced age, because the heroine, Petra, um, falls in love with her best friend's husband, and the whole thing is utterly disastrous. But it's got much more of a global reach because I wanted to explore things that have been swilling around in my head for some time, like what's happening in Africa with the Chinese, um, what's happening about surrogate babies, because in China the the fertility rate's plummeting due to the pollution, and they're going to, to America to get surrogate mothers for the one child they're allowed to have. And that means that the baby is an American citizen and they can all become American citizens. How clever is that? I want to explore things that are going on in African society. I want to explore poaching. So I had these sort of big, big non-British themes, which I've, I've sort of threaded together. They, they seem very, very disparate. I mean, one, one of the characters in it is, is a man who runs a mobile phone recharging booth in a small African town. And then suddenly you're in Texas. And, suddenly and then you're suddenly in Texas. you're in London. I know. It goes all over the place, but everything, everything weaves together. I adore plots that, that, that are like lovely, beautifully made kitchen units. You know, the drawers slide open silkily and everything fits into place. In the end... It all works out and you can't imagine how it's all going to connect. And it does. And I hope people have a bit of a surprise. I think that may be the first time on this podcast we've ever had novel writing described as kitchen design. <laughs> Thank you very much, Debbie. We massively look forward uh, to reading it and to seeing all your books on the screen. Thank you. Now on to my second guest, Sadie Jones, who's adapted her number one best-selling novel, The Outcast, as a two-part TV drama to be broadcast on BBC One in July. Starring George Mackay, Jessica Brown Finlay, Hattie Morahan, Greg Wise, and Nathaniel Parker. Originally published in 2008, The Outcast is a deeply romantic, uncomfortably honest coming of age story set in booming post war Britain. The novel's been published in 22 countries and was awarded the Costa First Novel Award as well as being an Orange Prize for Fiction finalist. And Sadie's latest book, Fallout, is out now in paperback. Welcome, Sadie. Thank you. Now, I've got a bit of a personal connection, unexpectedly, with this, this filming. I was interviewing you last year uh, for a magazine, and we were looking at our diaries and working out when we could do this interview. And we realised that I would be able to come and see you on the set of The Outcast, uh, which is a, a kind of real treat and a bit of a sort of privilege. You're often not allowed into sets. And so I got into my car and kind of tootled out to the beautiful countryside. If you remember, it was a gorgeous day. It was about to turn into autumn, but suddenly there was this summer day. And suddenly, my sat-nav took me into a village that was, well, the 1950s. And there you were. Just just tell us a <laughs> bit about that set. I remember that day so clearly. It was... Uh... It was extraordinary, that weather we had, because we'd been waiting to be greenlit for weeks. And we, you know, and, and, and do you remember the spring was gorgeous? And then the summer was gorgeous. And every week that passed, I'd think, well, that's another day of sun. That sort of, it seemed like the probability of getting, because most of the outcast is during this, this long, hot summer. And there's lots of, and I just thought, well, that's it. It's going to be raining. It's going to be September, October. And then the weather just held. It was really magical. And I remember that day. And the village was so perfect for it. And was it is, it's um, Hambledon. 
And it, it's got that sort of time warp. They do a lot of filming there. And I've known the village quite well over years and used to take the children there for picnics and things. And I often thought this would be a great place for the outcast. This is an outcastish sort of village. So there really was a sort of consonance between what you were doing and where you ended up, as it but were. Completely. What, what, you, what you thought as you sat there completely. making this book up. Now, it's seven years ago now since The Outcast was published. And, of course, it had been brewing for many years for you, hadn't it? You'd been, you'd been writing it for a long time. Yeah. Well, I, um, where are we? 2015. I wrote it, the screenplay, first in 2004, five. So then it was a script. The second half of the book was, was really the, the screenplay. Then it just didn't feel that I'd told it, so I wrote it as a book really to keep myself sane and then uh, that was over sort of 2006 told sold it in 2007 so it's yeah it's been a journey because it's then ever since it was optioned in 2008 and ever since I've been readapting it so <laughs> it's the end of a long road that must be actually quite an unusual way for things to go around something that started life as something you intended for another medium than the page then yeah. became a novel and now and now is is additionally uh, back on the screen. You've been ever so involved with this production, haven't you? I, ha I have been, thanks to uh, the director, Ian Softley, who is um, really unusual in that he's very collaborative. And I, I think it takes just a lot of confidence to be collaborative in that way, to be so sort of open to using other people's talents. And, you know, I was just emotionally... Um, and creatively keen to be there the whole time. But he, you know, I was very prepared for either him or the producers to not want that. And instead it was, you know, it, it was a really happy team. So I sort of spent a lot of time in the background, but then there would be these sort of emergency writing moments um, when it, I'd suddenly think, no, it's good I'm here. It's not just me indulging myself. I do need to be here. There is such an extraordinary thing, which, of course, we know in our heads, but is suddenly really borne in on you when you're actually faced with it. When you're on a set, there are almost unbelievable numbers of people, aren't there? There is somebody, everyone has a little job that they're doing. They are going about it very, very uh, intently because, of course, when you're filming, you know, every second is, is money mm. um, and no time can be lost but it's it's sort of like a hive in a way. It's the absolute reverse to writing a novel, writing for the page. It is, it? and it was really uh, fascinating to watch because partly because of the structure of it is so rigid. It's it's almost like a sort of army, the hierarchy of it. You know, who's who speaks to who and who works with who. It's just a, a for people watching. It was brilliant you know <laughs> and it takes a while especially because everyone has little headsets so in the past they would have been sort of yelling between departments but now they're sort of just talking very quietly to one another so you'd sort of see the camera operator who'd be talking to someone who'd be sort of yep all right going left now doing whatever and you sort of think oh okay it was it, god it was brilliant now of course you wrote the script so you had control over over what was going to go on but that's quite a different thing from seeing it come into being. So many other variables come into play, not least the performances of the actors. You can't actually govern mm. every minute interpretation. How did you feel as it started to take shape in front of your eyes? Well, there were, there were two ways I could have gone. <laughs> I could have been an, an insane control freak and just, you know, chewed my hands off going, that's not what I pictured. Or I could say, well, thank goodness, you know, somebody else 
is creating this. This is another piece of work. This is coming, you know, from the source, but it's a new thing. And that was just immensely gratifying. So I gave myself a big talking to early on, and I just thought, you are not going to be going, that's not right, that doesn't look right, that doesn't... It was such a relief. Because as a writer alone in a room, it, you have the magnificent freedom of being able to picture everything, but that doesn't mean that you can dictate how anyone reads it. You know that anyway, whatever you put on the page, it's a new world, and each each reader makes a new story and makes a new world. So it was a it was more a um, surrendering of that illusion of control that you could ever get inside someone's head and make it. And then at the same time, it was sort of a circle because the art department would would be asking me if I thought the flowers were right and they'd read the book and they'd pictured it and all. It was that was just so gratifying. So it was uh, it was a hundred percent positive in that way. It does strike me, thinking about your four novels now, that they're all very different from one another. Um, but they all do have very sort of arresting milieu that you can imagine uh, transforming themselves into films or TV. The Outcast, obviously, is that very sort of claustrophobic world of the 1950s of post-war Britain. Then we move to Cyprus, in again, in the kind of... Uh, in its British militarised period. Um then with the uninvited guests, you've got that sort of fantastic Edwardian costume drama moment. And Fallout, of course, is actually about performance itself, isn't mm. it? It's about theatre. Now, I'm sure you haven't sort of consciously uh, set out to locate each of your books in that kind of different milieu. But it is quite striking, isn't it, when you think about them now, that there's something very sort of visual about all of them in very different ways. Yes, and it's only when I hear it put like that, that I sort of realise my preoccupation with drama um, because I s- assumed I was a dramatist, I assumed I was a film writer. Um, I'm I'm not really sure why. So a number of, of things just led me in that direction. That was what I pictured. And then moving through that or on from that, I suppose I don't really separate those things that much. You know, um, what is a play, what is a film, what is a book? It, it's all um, it, it's all as fully realised an imaginary world as, as one can make. And then there are different tools with which to, to play it out, I suppose. So you see them as sort of connecting with one another. You see them as part of the same storytelling yes, world. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> oh, let's be really clichéd, with the, all the world's a stage. <laughs> um, I suppose with The Uninvited Guest, that was the... the quintessence of my um you know here's the stage to play the the story out on that was very sort of overtly theatrical and then coming through a slightly different door with fallout it was the world of theater but it was really about um you know people all people universally having to the way that we present ourselves the roles that we play if we can escape those roles so um i suppose yes there's just a constant interplay for me between drama and reality and theatre and truth and um, all those resonances. And Fallout, although it's it's set in the past, it's set in the world of, of radical theatre in the 60s and 70s, um, it's actually a, a, something that will play out very comfortably to our preoccupations now, isn't it? It's about politics, it's about performance, um, and it's a very visual sort of book. Do you think that would adapt well? Are you looking forward to... to oh, well, that we, we sort of have hopes for that. But um, I'm really trying to concentrate on just writing another book. Um, so you're back. It's one thing the, I can control, you know, back in back in the controllable universe of the study, which I'm quite enjoying. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sadie. 
You're welcome. So we've heard about the process of transforming a book into a film or TV drama, but what about taking the best of both worlds and putting a book and a film together? Well, that's exactly what Vintage have done, and this month they launch an exclusive film tie-in e-book of The Third Man by Graham Greene with Studio Canal and the British Film Institute. Is Mr Martins engaged on our new book? Yes. It's a murder story. It's based on fact. It's called The Third Man. Heard of Harry Lyme? Best friend I ever had. So you're going to find me the real criminal. Sounds like one of your stories. I'm joined now by Harriet Horribin-Worley from Vintage Digital, who's going to enlighten us on why they've done it and what we can expect. So, Harriet, tell us what this is. I mean, I read The Third Man when I was at school. I saw the film years and years ago. What am I going to get with this new edition? Yeah, well, this edition um, includes Graham Greene's full text of the novel, and it's studded with excellent clips from the 1949 movie, um, which was directed by Carol Reed um, and Graham Greene, He actually originally wrote this story as a treatment for the movie and it was never expected to be a novel. Um, So it's really great to see um, this material with the original text. So are you saying that originally this story was actually destined for the screen before it was ever supposed to be a story? It's very interesting. Sadie Jones has just told us something quite similar about the outcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, Graham Greene was good mates with Carol Reed and they originally collaborated on the movie The Fallen Idol um, so this came after it and uh, Graham Greene has actually said um, that he you know he couldn't write a screenplay originally he had to write the story first um, and then he worked with Carol Reed to on this like collaboration for the movie um, to bring it to the big screen um, so it's quite interesting to see the different changes that Carol made um, to the ending and the nationality of the main character um, and the point of view that it's told from. Um, and we've also got the original script in this ebook, so you can see, you know, the, the real transformation and creative process that went that went into making so this. When you actually, I like to say, open it. Do we open books anymore? When you actually kind of fire it up, what do you see in front of you? What's the the kind of visual uh, layout of the book? Um, well, you'll get the chapter um, just as a normal ebook um, with. Uh, an embedded video clip, basically, um, at the beginning. From the film? Yeah, from the film, and you can play that right right in the ebook, um, and you'll hear the amazing zither music that was the soundtrack to the film, um, and we've also got images embedded in the text, so you can... The cinematography really, like, sets the mood, I think, of this amazing... Uh, the streets of post-war Vienna, like, black and white and gloomy, and, and it really kind of sets the tone of the book. And we've also got, at the end a lot of behind-the-scenes photos in a kind of film strip, and you can zoom in on them and flick through them and, like, see the actors, you know, kind of preparing and reading scripts. And Wow. Um, so it yeah. really takes us away from the idea that you have either the experience of reading a text or the experience of watching a film. And in a sense, never the twain shall meet. This is kind of exploding that in a way. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's um, it's really great that we're you know, we're trying to experiment with this and, and really push the boundaries of what ebooks can be, that they don't have to just be text, as you say, and that um, you know, new digital formats can really combine media and they can combine, you know, new art forms and create create something 
that's completely different. It is an interesting idea because, of course, there will be purists. I might even be one of them in some things that would think, no, you know, sit down, shut out all other kind of external stimuli and read a book, engage with a text, read the words in front of you, think about the way that a writer has formed sentences, has created dialogue. Don't have all those other sorts of distractions. Now, as devil's advocate a bit, um, but, but tell me what you'd say to, to that person. I think I'd absolutely agree that we don't want to add like bells and whistles to things just because we can. Um, but I think this is a case with the third man um, that, um, it really compl- the form really complements the, the edition of the book because it, it was it is so linked to the to the material and to the movie that having it together in this format I think complements both the movie and the book and and is a really it's a must have for fans of the film um, and Graham Greene um, if they if they just want to like delve deeper into the material. And tell me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of putting together something like this. It sounds kind of ferociously complicated and also quite a lot of creative fun. Does it take a long time? Um, it is, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a long process. Um, we worked uh, with our ebook team as well as Studio Canal to, to kind of put this together. And um, I've sort of sat there editing the clips together and like choosing the different scenes. And, um, and uh, we worked with the BFI archive to, to get it. Um, the, the images from there and and put them in and kind of build the ebook. Now I know the ebook's out now, and in fact, if you happen to be in London, you can see the film in a kind of restored print at the BFI at the end of June. Um, but where should I find the ebook? Well, so if you have uh, an iPad, you can go to the iBook store um, and search for Third Man Enhanced, and you'll be able to download it through there, like any other ebook. Um, or if you do have uh, say a Kindle Fire or another tablet, um, it's available on Amazon and the Google Play Store as well. And this isn't the first uh, time you've done something like this. I think you've done done all sorts of other things, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, we created uh, an app for Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, which was um, also a kind of archive exploration and a really comprehensive look at a classic work um, for students and fans to, to delve deeper into the book. Um, and kind of utilising new digital like interactivity um, to, to get more out of a traditional traditional book. It's a great way of kind of actually breathing life into classics, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah, definitely. Thanks very much for joining us, Harriet. Great, thank you. Well, that's all from us this month. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast and thanks to my guests Deborah Mogok, Sadie Jones and Harriet horribin Warning. If you've missed any episodes of the podcast or would like to listen again, you can find all our episodes on our website, www.vintage-books.co.uk. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye.